Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the late Mike Rose. He died in August of 2021. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you get your podcasts. Then let's just go. Do you have any questions of me before we start? Um, gee, I don't think so. Oh, okay. just, well, I guess one question. Mm-hmm. Um, since it, we're taping, if I find myself going down a road and I'm in a dead end, can I just start over again? Yes. And, you know, we're, okay. we, um, we will edit this later. And okay. switch means we get to have a real conversation. It doesn't have to be completely linear. And right. if you go down a dead end, you can back up and walk down another direction. And uh, it's great. We have a lot of freedom. And um, Terrific. Yeah. And digital editing is a fantastic invention. You know, we, we could all use it in our daily lives. <laughs> <laughs> I'm for that. Yeah. And, you know, I know, I know you're familiar with the show. And I think that there's such a – the way you write and think – and work is is very kindred to what I do. I mean, it's it's getting at big ideas, but narratively. So, I, I mean, I think you know that, but that's what I want to do. I want to talk about some some of the important ideas that you think about and write about, and and also draw on who you are and what you know through experience as well. But again, I feel like I don't even have to explain that because that's that's the way you approach these things. <laughs> well, thanks. It's nice to hear it, though. Thank yeah, you. and and um, you know. I really do want to have a big, deep discussion and not get too bogged down in some of the discussions about education that get hashed and rehashed like No Child Left Behind. I mean, I know oh you've written God. it. You know what thank, I mean? Thank you so uh, much. Because I want us to talk Jeez. about something that can endure. And so we may talk about some of that near the end, but, but, I, but I, I really want to um, pull back from some of those um, things, those hot button issues of the moment. So, Oh, man, I'll tell you, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm hungry to do okay. that because you can imagine the interviews that I do. It's, yeah. It always gets just nailed down to, well, what about high stakes testing or blah, blah, blah. And yeah. It's like, oh, my God, can we please talk about something just a little broader than that? Yeah. Well, so, also, so thank you. Well, also, what we don't do is you need to talk about the broader things in order to have a really thoughtful critique of all of this, right? Or to have a vision more. about where it moves next. So, okay, so that's what we'll try to do. Um, and, you know, I I always, um, you, you've written a lot and you've written quite personally, but um, I, I haven't seen much um, about the, the spiritual or religious background of your childhood, if there was one that was very active um, and that's yeah. the place I'd like to start. You know, what what was sure. that in that world of your childhood? Um, you know, there wasn't it. It's interesting that the 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 way religion played or didn't play in my childhood. Um, my parents are both Italian immigrants. They were Catholic. <laughs> I was guessing I was, that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was raised in the Catholic Church, um, baptized, First Communion, you know, all of that. Um, 
they were not churchgoers particularly. Mm. My father was sick most of the time I knew him. And my mother had to work to keep us afloat. So she was working all the time, waiting tables. So we weren't we weren't observant Catholics in that sense, you know. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't go to church a lot. And um, I did go to a Catholic school. And at some point, Krista, somewhere around my sophomore year in high school, it just ceased to make a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't have called myself an atheist at 14 or 15, mm-hmm. and I'm not that now. But... There was a sense that the the church and its dogma and what it represented, um, it just felt distant to me. Mm-hmm. And without, I, I guess, without the close surround of a of a of a family connection to church, uh, I found myself drifting away from it all. However, having said all that, you know, when you grow up in a working class Italian family. Uh, the Catholic Church is ever present right. in various it's ways. It's in the fabric right? of things, isn't it? Uh-huh. It is in the fabric. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, for immigrant folk, it's also mixed with various and sundry kinds of rituals and beliefs that the Catholic Church would find abhorrent. <laughs> so I remember as a as a little boy, my mother took me when when we were still we moved to Los Angeles when I was about seven or eight. And before that, we grew up in Altoona, Pennsylvania, which is a town about an hour east of Pittsburgh, a a classic train town. Uh, The Pennsylvania Railroad made Mm. and then broke Altoona, Pennsylvania. Mm. And before we left to come west, I remember my mother taking me to my grandmother's, who then took us down the street to the Good Witch in the neighborhood. (laughs) And right there on the wall is a crucifix and pictures of our Lord and the Blessed Virgin. And she's also doing good witchcraft, right? She <laughs> pronounced some <laughs> some incantations over me. And if I remember right, I think she hung some garlic from my neck or put it under my armpits and mm. said some other things. And that made me good to go. I was protected from the evil eye, therefore, when we moved west. So it was a really interesting um almost novelistic uh, exposure to that side of working-class immigrant Italian religious life, this blend, this mix of, of Catholicism and, um, and beliefs that would be more, I guess, certainly non-Catholic, uh, this, this intimate blend of the two. Mm-hmm. So, so, so these notions about damnation and hell and redemption and salvation and these iconic images of, you know, of Jesus um, on the cross and and all of that, that is part of my consciousness. It's part of my makeup. And even though I ceased to be a practicing Catholic as a young, as a young man, uh, all of that stuff stays with you. And, you know, it's been true for lots of folks, right? I mean, Joyce, <laughs> the writer James Joyce, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the ever-presence right, right, of that, that right. Irish Catholicism is just the woof and warp of his fiction. Right. And let me ask you, <clears throat> let me ask you this. Um, how would you start to tell the story of 
how and when you became attentive to what you would call the spirit of education. Maybe you wouldn't have called it that then, but what you now think mm-hmm. of as the, the essence of education. Right. That's a lovely question. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're right. I wouldn't have talked about it that way at yeah. the time. I, I've got to say, I've got to say that it began for me in my senior year in high school. I, you know, I didn't do so well in school. I, I, I could read, which was really fortunate since that's the sort of meta tool, right? right, so, right. so I could read and that was immensely helpful, but I was horrible in mathematics. I couldn't diagram a sentence if you held a gun to my head. I, there was just so much I didn't learn and didn't know. I was a kind of a dreamy, disconnected kid and just didn't do that well in school. And so then when I went to high school, uh, I ended up in the vocational track. Those were in the days when, when schools were, were pretty rigidly tracked, right? And, yeah. you know, you ended up in a track that geared you toward going into into the world of work, usually physical work. And then there was a sort of large middle ground, and then there was the college preparatory track. And so I ended up in the vocational track for a few years, and I drifted through that. And then a remarkable thing happened. It, somebody found out that somewhere along the line, my entrance tests to high school got confused with somebody else whose last name was Rose. Uh And so suddenly in my junior year, I find myself in this college preparatory track. (sighs) And I was as ill-prepared for that as I was for playing the defensive tackle on the football team. I, I, I was so in the deep end of the pool. And... So I drifted through all that and in my senior year had the sheer dumb good luck of getting an English teacher who himself had just left Columbia uh, University and came out west and wanted to teach for a few years. And he ended up in this school and he was maybe six or seven years older than we were. And he was just a classic bohemian. And that was Jack McFarland, right? And that was mm-hmm. Jack McFarland. And so suddenly after all those years of sort of drifting around and not knowing what was up, we hit this guy who is giving us every other week a new book to read, starting with Homer <laughs> and working his way down to Hemingway. And we were writing papers that he assiduously corrected and commented on. And for some reason, some complex set of reasons, it caught my fancy. The guy just caught me. And that was the beginning of this road that I've ended up on now. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have thought to go to college. Mm. If it wasn't for him, I don't know if I would have found the pleasure and excitement and the challenge of that kind of intellectual work. And so when you asked me the question about when did I begin to think about or understand in some kind of way this spirit of education, it had to be there. Um, Again, I certainly wouldn't have expressed it like that, but there was something about what he was doing with us that caught me in a very deep and powerful way. There's some, something interesting that strikes me in your writing and in the way you tell this story also. Um, 
is that we tend to talk about education in terms of cognitive abilities, right? I mean, maybe that's mm-hmm. the de- working definition we have in mind. But mm-hmm. when people talk about education, when it really started to um, click, if they have those stories, uh, it's it's always embodied, right? I mean, it's not just <laughs> it's not just what the teacher taught you, because that's not really what you remember. You remember the whole his being, right? Mm-hmm. And the effect he had on you, and the feelings that you had about the learning, and you write about that with other people, with students, all kinds of students you've worked with. Um, but I just don't—I don't think we we pause to consider that. You know, we don't, and unfortunately, we sure don't today. It seems like you know, there's for. A generation now, it seems like our, our the primary story that we tell about why you go to school is to fit into the economic order. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. I mean, I, I come from a working class background, and if without without schooling, without the education that I got after after Jack McFarland, I I mean, I would have a very different kind of life. So I'm not poo-pooing the fact that historically people have sent their kids to school in the United States to advance economically. But if that's the only motive you have or if that's the primary narrative that we tell ourselves uh, about what school is for, then everything else gets dropped out. I mean, the curriculum gets narrowed. The way people teach gets changed. And to touch on your point, um, all of these other dimensions of education get short shrift. Mm-hmm. The emotional side of it, the social side of it, you know, the existential identity side of it. Right. I, mean, I mean, you know, what happened there in that classroom with Jack McFarland and me was that I began to, I think, I began to think of myself in a different way. Right. <laughs> um, that's what happens that's when powerful. education is working, isn't it? Right. I think so. And if I could, Krista, I'd like to say just one more thing, and that is focusing on the cognitive, the, 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 in, the, the intellectual, the content, subject matter, disciplinary area of education, that, that's, I, I think that's completely understandable and it's fine. And, and, and I'm constantly conscious of that. It's a big, big thing with right. me. I want, I want students to leave my classroom knowing things and knowing how to do things. But you know what's interesting is I think that we strip away from the cognitive, the emotional and existential side of, of, of cognition um, that's part and parcel of it. Right. So, so I, think, I, I think that, you know, when we were reading Homer or Hemingway or Conrad or Shakespeare or whomever for Jack McFarlane, the way he was teaching us and what we did with it was at one and the same time cognitive and cognitive plus, right? It right. was cognitive and social, cognitive and interactional. Um, and I think we make a mistake sometimes when we so narrowly define and bifurcate these aspects of human experience that are really intertwined. Mm-hmm. And you know my my background is is quite different from yours, but but I um, I and I grew up in the you know in Oklahoma, kind of in the middle of the country in the West. 
what's similar is well no it's not really sim- it's different but as i think what i was very if i think about the the culture of my childhood in terms of education i was very much in the thick of um of a of an anti-intellectual frontier america <laughs> right um and you also have written a lot about that strain which takes different forms uh in different, different, probably different regions of the country, different socioeconomic groups, but um, that is that is a dynamic in American life. And sometimes I think when education isn't working, it becomes a default place, as you've said. You know that it's okay to just to for people to say they let's just be average, right? The av- the, the <laughs> common Joe or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about um, you know. About that as something that that um, is a tension in our culture and even in our in the culture of our schools. Yeah, you know, I'd actually like to hear a little bit more about about how you experienced that growing up in Oklahoma. Did you was it something you experienced personally, or you just saw around you, or? Well, you know. The football team just had a much bigger budget <laughs> than the debate team. I mean, there you could you could count it out in dollars and cents if you wanted to. And what happened when things would be cut? Would the advanced courses would be cut? Right. So right, there was right. a point in my high school years where there were budget cuts, and the football budget wasn't being cut, and it was actually already incredibly large. Right. But uh-huh. they were cutting all the classes that had. Fewer than ten students, which meant any advanced languages, any advanced sciences, right? So right. it was kind of thoughtless. It wasn't that people sat down and said, "Well, let's cut, let let's let's uh, stop creating opportunity for our most intellectually ambitious students." It wasn't like that. It was mm-hmm. just, um, "Well, this must mm-hmm. not matter." Um, mm-hmm. And it and it was, but you know, but it was also based on a deep sense of what did matter, <laughs> football, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which was not on the table. Um, right, right. Uh, you know, the, the, these, these tensions that you're talking about, I, I mean, they go far back in the Republic. Yes. It's, it's, an, interesting, it, it's an interesting dynamic. And, and um, well, you know, nobody wrote about it better than Richard Hofstadter in the book mm. uh, Anti-Intellectualism in American right. Life. Right, and yet this country has achieved absolutely extraordinary feats on all fronts through its massive intellectual energy. So again, it's this odd tension, and mm-hmm. it gets expressed in different ways. Right? Sometimes it's expressed in terms of uh, rural or country or mid America versus. Uh, the city or East Coast elites or East Coast institutions, right? So there's that sort of country-city tension that runs through our literature back into the 19th century. Um, And and in fact, Sarah Palin was masterful at playing those guitar chords, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. In, in in her speeches. So there's that kind of tension. And Hand in glove. There's a, there's another tension that I that I understand, 
And it's the tension between book learning and practical experience. Yes, and I think that was the tension that you were most acutely aware of when you were growing up. Uh Yes, and it's a very interesting tension to me. And and again, it goes way back, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Way back in our history. And in, and, and, and and what part of what Hofstadter chronicles is the, the, the way the country shifts over time from more and more of a weight and credibility given to practical experience, the practical man, um, uh, the wisdom gained through living versus the certification of schools, book work, intellectual endeavor – uh, certification, all of that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. we have moved into the 20th century and we've become a culture of certification, right? A culture of school-based uh, credibility and training and all of that sort of thing. So what you used to learn in the apprentice shop, you now learn in a classroom. Right. So there's this this whole cultural shift, but, but the tensions remain. I... I uh, somewhere I quote my cousin, um, and I love this 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 little saying because it captures so much. He says he likes to say all the time, you know, it it took a guy with a college degree to screw this up, and a guy with a high school degree to fix it, and so <laughs> right. it kind yeah. of perfectly captures that that tension. That's part of uh, the American spirit too. It really is. It is, uh-huh. isn't it? Uh-huh. And you know, Krista, I gotta say. Given how I grew up and what I what I experienced as I grew up, I understand the legitimacy of the point of view that says that, or that gives that gives credibility to hands-on experience mm-hmm. versus the abstractions um, that can so often emerge from just learning through books. And of course, what I strive for in my own work and with students who I've worked for. I, I strive to try and figure out how you blend these mm-hmm. these strands. Because again, and I guess you saw this when you looked through my stuff, I, I'm very uncomfortable with binaries, with simple dichotomies, with it's either this or it's that. Right, right. There's above-the-neck learning and below-the-neck learning right. we talk about, and then we strip the intellectual out of physical work, and we strip right. the physical out of intellectual activity. Yeah. Right. And, and, and those, those uh, things that we do with our mind when, when, when we talk about culture or society or human activity, I think are just troubling and reductive and end up doing more harm than good. And so what I strive for, and in fact, I think what happens in most kinds of good work, whether it's styling hair or neurosurgery, is that you get this blend of formal training with hands-on experience. And the folks who best blend those strands are the people who are usually the best at what they do. Let's talk about um, let's talk about that. I mean, let's. You, one of your books is the mind at work, and um, and I. I mean, I, let's start there, and we can talk about education and intelligence in 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 the many forms it takes. But um, mm-hmm. you know, there's this beautiful. There are these beautiful sentences. I think this may be the beginning of your book. I grew up a witness to the intelligence of the waitress in motion, the reflective welder 
the strategy of the guy on the assembly line. This, then, is something I know, the thought it takes to do physical work. It's a wonderful statement, and I'm sure many people have made those kinds of observations. But again, I think it's something we don't sit down and formulate, (laughs) speak out loud, (laughs) or read on the page like that. Well, thank you. Um, Thank you for that. You know, I, I, I guess... I guess I had no choice but to see things that way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, as I grew up, I, my father and I, um, until he just became too sick to, to get out of the house, we would uh, take the bus downtown and, and go um, spend time with my mother while she worked. We'd sit at the counter or one in, in, in there was this back booth, you know. In most restaurants, there'll be some little back booth where the, the, the cooks and the waitresses will, will take their breaks. And... So we'd, we'd sit there and I'd watch, I'd watch her work. And, you know, I mean, even to a child's eye, it was just such an impressive display of yeah. competence. Well, and, and then you, you later <laughs> interviewed your mother for this book. I did, I did. So tell me about what you learned then or what you were maybe able to put words around that, um, that you that you had observed, but, but hadn't, you know, that were then really able to grasp. Um, right, right, right. About the mind you know, at work in her waitressing. Right. And, and that was, you know, one of the joys of doing that book was, uh, I, I express it somewhere in the introduction this way, it, it was like this opportunity to bring together these different parts of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, all of this training that I had gotten in the university and graduate school, all this training in cognitive psychology and thinking about how people think and all of that, it was this wonderful opportunity to take all that and bring it right back home, right? Bring Mm -hmm. it right back to the kinds of work that all my forebears did, working in restaurants or, or machinists and welders in the railroad yards or working in the automobile factories when when um, when the automobile industry was booming and it was a chance to bring these 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 parts of my life together and so what i was able to articulate better through bringing this formal knowledge of cognitive science to bear on my mother's experience let's say um, i was able to give a vocabulary to what I saw her do. Mm-hmm. I was able to both label it and understand it, and this was very exciting. I was able to make connections between her work and this lofty research taking place in research laboratories, right? right? right. And in a way, test that research with just the, the lived experience of her work in a restaurant. So, for example... It helped me understand um, the complex memory work that waitresses, waiters in, 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 in restaurants are able to do, especially in, you know, these big chains that have the rushes at breakfast and yeah. lunch where you see these folks just zooming through places. And they, and they always seem, the good ones seem to, you know, they know who, who gets the fried shrimp. They know who gets the chef's salad. They know who gets that omelet. So they're remembering that stuff. They're remembering things about what the regulars like or don't like. 
really good bartenders are that way too. I right. mean, you, you've had that experience, right. right? You walk into a place where they know you and you go, they, they go, there's the gin and tonic, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So, so all the memory work and then all of the play of attention and vigilance, the constant kind of scanning of the workspace, right? Who needs what? What's going on? Somebody dropped a fork. Somebody else is waving. Oops, the manager's seating some new people over there. Oops, you know what? It's taken too long for that shrimp plate to come out. I better check on that. Mm -hmm. So there's all that kind of stuff going on. There's, you know, when you watch, when you watch a waitress at rush hour, they seem so economical. They're zooming through the place, Mm -hmm. but they're not missing a lick, right? Well, what's going on is that they're prioritizing on the fly the different things they have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as one waitress put it to me when I interviewed her, she said, you know, if, if, if you don't do that, if you don't cluster these tasks together, you're going to run yourself ragged. And so there's a real efficiency that emerges in the middle of the action on the fly. So it's this kind of talk yeah, that, that is I certainly, cognitive, too. <laughs> that's very cognitive. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't have talked that kind of talk when I was a kid watching her do what she mm-hmm. did. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, there was something that you're, I think it was your mother who said, I thought that was so interesting that that sometimes when things are so crazy, like, you know, as you're saying, when you're sitting in one of these restaurants, when hmm. every table is full and there's a big waiting line and... Um, and I, you know, and I have had this experience of watching a waitress and thinking, oh, how are they holding it together? And was it was it she the one who said that, uh, that she almost described it? She didn't use this term, but it's almost like a transcendent experience that there was kind of a rush that you yeah. that you yeah. just went into this place. Um, uh, I don't know. Can you remember what she? It was yes, very, yeah. You know, it's what it's what these these folks today call the flow experience, yeah. right? Okay, but, but she didn't yeah. have that language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and again, what's she wouldn't so have said this either. Like a Zen place, she wouldn't. <laughs> she wouldn't have said that either, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. But she and other um, waitresses uh, and bartenders I've talked to, they talk about that. Hmm. They talk about the fact that that in that, and this is almost counterintuitive. That they're more efficient, the busier it gets. Right. That they get into this kind of, of performance zone, if you will, where just all cylinders are clicking. You know, the vigilance, the attending, the prioritizing, the quick physical movement. All of that is just working like a fine machine. Um, and my mother would talk about the fact that when it was a lot slower, uh, she found herself bored and probably less acute, mm-hmm. you know, less on her game. Well, and actually, you know, I think I would probably say that of my work, too, which has more to do with sitting in front of a computer screen or a book, right? Or, uh, But mm-hmm. it maybe you would say it's it's all intellectual or verbal, but being on deadline is energizing, Right, mm-hmm. and then it becomes harder to click the tasks off when there's no, there's no urgent reason to do it. it we we rise to those occasions, mm-hmm. you know. And what I mean, what it made me think of when I you wrote about all kinds of all kinds of work uh, that again we think of as physical labor, um, uh, and 
this is another experience we have all the time, but we don't always name is how you know there's giftedness in every occupation, right? Mm-hmm. In a in a plumber or a painter or a waitress or a hairstylist, certainly. You you interviewed you had a chapter on hairstylists, right? <laughs> and it's yes. that and it's that same. I mean, you can, although we don't often talk about intelligence in these spheres of work. Um, it is that mix of skill and intelligence and sophisticated knowledge and judgment and instinct that's been honed by practice. Yeah, exactly right. And and I guess that's what I was trying to do mm-hmm. in, in, in that book, right, is to, especially in this high-tech era where we are so, and, and understandably so, yeah. we are so captivated by electronic media, by the continued breakthroughs in technologies of all kinds, um, and absolutely, those are those are worth celebrating and worth marveling at. But what unfortunately happens is that is that our marvel at these new technologies plays into this unfortunate trend in the West of looking down on those who work with their hands. Right. Um, a tendency that goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle to consider the person who works with his or her hands manual labor manual labor of any kind mm-hmm. to be of lesser quality to be um, soul shriveling to be you know they they, they uh, the, the Greeks even talked about it making one unfit for civic participation mm. so this tendency has been around for such a long time and it's so undemocratic to right. my mind right Right, mm-hmm. and 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 so I wanted to try and turn all that on its head and say, all right, let's take these frameworks of intelligence and cognition and analyzing tasks that usually we reserve for white collar folks, professional folks, biographies of scientists and entrepreneurs and whatnot. Let's see what happens when we take these lenses and turn them on. The folks who comprise the backbone of the economy and of what makes the world run, right? right. Physical, manual labor, ser- labor, service work, and that. And w- what happened as I did that was um, just this revelation of what you were talking about, the, the knowledge base you have to build to be good at anything from styling hair to plumbing to... Uh, welding to bricklaying, whatnot, the, mm-hmm. and the deployment of that knowledge and solving problems with it and troubleshooting and and uh, making decisions on the fly. And it was just such a wonderful experience. What an excursion it was for mm-hmm. me to spend this kind of time with these folks, folks I've grown up with, but spend this time with them and using that lens to kind of highlight and underscore the richness of their work, which just so often gets dismissed until, it gets dismissed until, Krista, <laughs> until something goes wrong with our plumbing. Right. And then suddenly this the, most, the most, important most important person <laughs> in the world. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, and, and then let's talk about the educational implications of this, the policy implications, mm-hmm. if you will. I mean, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's a question that you pose repeatedly in your writing, and I think we'll come back to it again in this conversation. You know, what kind of education befits a democracy? Mm. And which is very resonant with what you just said about um, how you've thought about intelligence and different kinds of work. And... Um, 
I was quite interested to read, when you write about vocational education, I mean, I do think that the notion of vocational education has had a bit of a boon in recent years. I mean, there's more attention. Yes. Also, yes. as we've become globalized, I've, I've been aware that, you know, the United States compares itself to cultures like Japan or Germany, which have very robust um, vocational education sectors. But mm-hmm. something that you've pointed out, uh, and I and I I don't know. I mean, I lived in Germany for a while. I'm not sure if this is true in those other cultures, but I think it's true here that um, even as we try to take this notion of vocational education more seriously, we we strip out a sense of the cognitive and civic um, aspect that precisely what you're describing. And you, you said we talk about these students. You said the way we talk about these students who are not going to go to university but are going to be vocationally trained is inflected with a sense of their limitation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to if you want to look at a 100-year case study, a 100-year institutional case study of what can go wrong when a culture holds to these kinds of um, diminished notions of the intelligence involved in everyday work that, that we've been talking about, if you want a 100-year case, institutional case study of it, you look at vocational education. Because right. when, when you go back and look at the origins of, of voc ed, um, in the 19-teens and 20s, um, you begin to see that even at the beginnings, at the beginnings of it, there were these notions afoot. Like, for example, well, there are children who are hand-minded. That was a phrase that they used, Mm -hmm. hand-minded. And then there are those who are abstract-minded. Now, these were... Statements sure, either one of those sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Which option is better? Right. Yeah. Well, getting back to something that's dear to me is that hopefully all yeah. of us to some degree or another are both of those things. Right. right? Mm-hmm. But so imagine then you begin this enterprise that's called vocational education with notions like that that separate whole huge chunks of young humanity into one category or the other, and hey, no big surprise, the kids who were clumped into that hand-minded group tended to be poor kids, immigrant kids, kids of color, right? Mm -hmm. And those who were moved or categorized as being the abstract-minded folks, well, gee, no big surprise, they tended to be white and and, uh, here for generations and come from more well-to-do families. John Dewey, you know, our great American philosopher, called uh, called this social predestination. Hmm. So, at the at the very origins, the very beginnings of voc ed as it manifested itself through most of the 20th century, you had these kinds of ideas, right, about students, about intelligence, about work, about mental activity. So no wonder we ran into this situation where the vocational track ended up being, for many kids, a dumping ground. Right. You know, kind of a place where you put the kids that you're not sure what to do with and they're not exhibiting, you know, all sorts of terrific you – know, they're not, you're not getting great grades and, you know, all sorts of reasons that students might get, get slotted into that. Now, now, having said that, I, I don't want to deny for a minute that there weren't great voc ed teachers mm-hmm. all the way along the way. There, there were, and P 
people learn things and so so I don't I don't want to be dismissive of the enterprise. Right. But yeah. But I was just going to say but when you look at the whole trajectory of it no wonder it ended up creating within the school this place where the intelligence of the work being done was not foregrounded where kids at a at a crucial transitional point in their development are categorized as being not that bright um, and the kind of curriculum they got, uh, particularly outside of the workshops, was just in in many cases not that stimulating and not that inventive. Mm-hmm. So no wonder we ended up in the fix we did. Now you're right, in the last decade or two, there's been a lot of money and a lot of attention paid to try to revitalize voc-ed and to blend back, bring back, to revitalize the natural intellectual content that so that is lies you see that work. that is part of of some of these good programs that have sprung up in the last decade. Do you think they are yes. acknowledging this intellectual? Mm-hmm. That they are, and they are they're trying to break this awful hundred year old barrier that separates the quote unquote vocational from the quote unquote academic. That that's another one of these splits. <laughs> I've been talking about these dichotomies and binaries, right? That's another one of these splits, I think, that have gotten us into trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, something that I that concerns me is um, when people talk about meaningful work, you know, that it's one of mm-hmm. those phrases that's really out there in our vocabulary now. Um, as people, you know, I think try to become less materialistic, uh, the kinds of conversations I end up having... Um, or to question some of the materialism that's surrounded us or to, mm-hmm. to think about what are we as whole human beings and the spiritual aspect. And you will hear people talk uh, about the importance of for human beings, um, and I just think this is true, to feel that we're doing something meaningful and purposeful with our lives. Right. And right. and I think that's a fact. Um, and But what concerns me, um, like people will often say to me, I can't tell you how many people will say to me, you know, you must have the best job in the world, right? And so, <laughs> but what they think is that I that I spend my time having these wonderful conversations, and and I mean, I you know, I, I am incredibly grateful for my job. But what I say to them, yes, but it's it's a job. I mean, there's a huge amount of work and a huge amount that's not romantic that goes into this. By the same token, I worry when we then romanticize certain kinds of work as meaningful that are more, you know, that are overtly meaningful, right? I mean, there are mm-hmm. kinds of work that are overtly meaningful, and there are companies that are doing, producing products that are overtly more meaningful than other companies, right? But I feel like we lose sense of all the different ways in which work is meaningful. And to me, you know, working to put food on the table for your family to eat also makes that work meaningful in some sense, um, and I just, I don't know, I'm kind of throwing that out because this is something that concerns me that, that this is another way we might have of making people either feel good or bad about the work they do and their yeah. identity. You know, I'm really, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because what you're putting your finger on is that the use of this notion of meaningful work, which is a a lovely notion. And as you say, I mean, what's the bottom line thing that that drives our lives is to is to have some kind of meaningful life, to yeah. not just be a, a, a blip and that's it, you know? 
So, so, so that's all well and good. But what I, I like about what you're doing here is you're putting your finger on the fact that the way people talk about meaningful work can un- inadvertently have a very elitist tinge to yes. it. Yes. And again, so, I think it's this intellectual versus physical that can have a, that too. Like, you, you are on the dime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so let's then bust this notion of meaningfulness open, right? Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. think about this. It can have great meaning to somebody like my, my Uncle Joe, who worked like a dog at General Motors, uh, starting on the, the nastiest, dirtiest job on the assembly line and then making his way up. Now, that work ended up having a lot of meaning for him in various ways, but it was immensely meaningful for him, this guy with a, with a ninth-grade education. It was immensely meaningful for him to be able to support his family, to send all three of his kids to college, yeah. right? That, that, that gave huge meaning to his life. Um, so, so as you say, being able to, regardless of the kind of work, to be, in, to be able to support a family or put food on the table, that's meaningful. Yeah. For, for, for my mother doing this kind of work, which was very hard work, and it took its toll on her physically, and she had to suffer the kinds of insults that all sorts of working people have to suffer. But it was a way for th- her, and she talked about this a lot, to be out in the world. She, she, she saw that job as a kind of social sphere, a social field. She talked all the time about being among the public mm. and what that meant to her. Mm. So for her then... In the midst of this difficult work and difficult circumstances, there was great meaning in the kind of social dimension of it, right? Yeah. Conversely, you and I both know people who are doing work that the culture at large from a distance would say is really meaningful really and they're ennobling. miserable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. They're, 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 they're as unhappy as can be. Mm-hmm. You know, the miserable lawyer, the unhappy neurosurgeon, the... Mm-hmm. Right? There's, mm-hmm. there's those two. So meaningfulness, I'm glad you're doing this. Meaningfulness is a more fluid and rich and variable concept, I think, than we tend to, 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 to imagine. Right. It's, it's, you can't, it's not in a job title. It's in no. <laughs> either positively or negatively. Yeah, yeah, that's that's well put. Okay, well, I'm I've been wanting to talk about that with someone, and <laughs> thank you for. And here you go. <laughs> I got it. Okay. We did it. Yeah, and <laughs> and um, so I'm also very intrigued by you. You've written a lot and worked a lot on what is often called remedial learning. Um, you you know uh, and have worked in situations where. I mean, there's a criticism that you recite that, in fact, it turns out is as old as American democracy, that uh, this generation, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that students are turning up for college completely illiterate and unprepared, right? So you, you point out that everyone has said that um, right. across the ages. But certainly that's a theme, that's a refrain that's out there in our culture now. And, yes. and there are a lot of people turning up in college and, and a lot of effort being put into uh, addressing skills and abilities that it seems they should have had from high school. You've you've worked on, in that sphere, um, you know, on that frontier, and um, I, I'd like for you to, you know, one of the things maybe this is a place to start about what you talk about is not 
is what opportunity you're interested in what opportunity feels like hmm. again you've you've learned that where this works and again that just that word remedial is such a piece of baggage right but where it works and is humanizing and ennobling is is where and what not just happens is that people catch up with skills but that they ex, that they experience opportunity that it's a whole body experience let me tell you a story um this was about 20 years ago and i was doing uh, i was involved in a a research project at an urban community college, and um, and as sort of, as payback, kind of to 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 the folks who were letting me uh, study the remedial programs there, I did a lot of tutoring. So I was tutoring this man. Uh, he was in his late thirties. Um, he had suffered brain damage as a child from a fall and it, because of that he was kept out of school for a long time and probably it wasn't treated properly so he you know he both was he both missed a lot of school but probably had some kind of damage as well that that was permanent um, so here he is he's in his late 30s he's back in this basic skills program in a community college um, and he was a really interesting man. He had educated himself. He could barely read and write, but he had educated himself by, he was a janitor, and so when he was doing his work at night in these office buildings, he would listen to public affairs programs on the radio. He'd listen to FM radio, mm -hmm. um, probably NPR and, yeah. and stations like that, right? He would watch uh, um, public television at home so he got his information orally from these these sources, and he decided he wanted to come back to school. Now, obviously, one of the reasons that he did that is because he wanted to, you know, turn in his mop and pail for a job that would provide provide for him better, for sure. So the economic motive was there. But there were all these other reasons, too. He wanted to be able to better help his daughter who was in school. He wanted to add to these other sources that, that, you know, the oral sources that he had. He wanted to add to the sources he had of gaining information about things because he was just a voraciously curious man. So we're, this is late one, one afternoon in the library and we're sitting there together and I'm helping him read a flyer that he found uh, at school, and it was on the dangers of cocaine. And he wanted to be able to give it to his daughter and talk to her about mm. it. So I was helping him read this. Now, now, by the way, notice why he wanted to read it, right? Not yeah. because he wanted to get a grade in a class, right. but because he wanted to have the skill to better guide his daughter. So we're, we're working away, and it's late in the afternoon, and it is dark. It's getting dark, and it's cold outside, and the wind is blowing, and it's rainy, and you know, that kind of bleak urban landscape, right, with newspapers yeah. blowing in the rain and flying up against the windows and all that. And it's late, and I'm getting hungry, and I'm thinking about the, uh, the long walk back to my car, which was parked far away in the dreary weather. And so we're doing And then, boom, suddenly it's getting time for the library to close. Right. Okay. So we get up, and 
were getting ready to walk outside. And he turns to me, and he's got a big smile on his face. And he goes, man, he says, you know, I know this can't happen by osmosis, but this is where it's at. And I just, I was so taken by that moment that I can't get it out of my head. So here, here is this man sitting in this library, and, and he's experiencing the potential of a new self, really. Right. He's, he's experiencing ways that he's going to enhance how he learns about the world. He's getting the sense that he's doing something that's going to be able to help his daughter. Um, this is powerful stuff. And that's what opportunity feels like, mm, right? Mm. At least that's one manifestation of it. Here I was. This, this was also a humbling experience <laughs> for right, me, Krista. Right, right. This reminded me of something that I think anybody in the helping professions or the healing professions constantly needs to be reminded of. And that is we're always going to miss things. Yeah. And there's going to be times when we're just not as connected as we should be. And so there I was. I was just thinking about, oh, my God, it's so dreary Well, but also, <laughs> let's say, let's look at it more positively. It's also, you don't always know when you're doing your best work, right? Well, that, that puts a generous cast on it. Yeah. But it, it's, it, it, was, it was a reminder mm-hmm. of, of uh, again, how important this work is, how it can be meaningful to folks sometimes when you don't realize it. Yeah. And back to your point, it's that kind of thing that gives you this palpable sense of what it feels like to somebody to have a notion that, oh, my gosh, there's something more I can do. And that, that you know, what opportunity feels like, that story just told, that, that also really uh, brings out what I, what I got from your work, which is, you know, literacy is a much bigger concept than being able to read, right? I mean, right. you wrote, there's this very... I mean, a couple of poetic sentences you've written. I think you were writing about those students that time in your life, and you said, you know, poverty has generated its own damaged script. Scars manifest in the spelling of a word. In another place you wrote, you know, what's at stake? You wrote, literacy here is intimately connected with respect, with a sense that they are not beaten, the mastery of print revealing the deepest impulse to survive. Hmm. Yeah, it. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a theme that's been running through our conversation, right? That that work or education or any of the other kinds of powerful things that people engage in, that they have multiple dimensions to them, mm-hmm. and and certainly one dimension is functional and economic and pragmatic, but there's so much else to it too, right? It has to do with this sense of who you are. It has to do with a sense of hope. It has to do with a sense of being able to do something you couldn't do before. Yeah. Um, it can be, uh, it, it has a side to it that can be so much more than just the economic. So so let me ask you a question now that I thought I might ask you earlier in the conversation. You know, when you, you talked about Jack McFarland, this English teacher who kind of set your mind on fire and there again is an image that's both <laughs> tactile and you know visual and intellect cognitive, um, 
and then you and then you write about going to Loyola College. I mean, you and there was you know it was only very recently that you'd even thought that college would be something that was in your life. And you had other teachers, and you wrote these were mentors who collectively collectively gave me the best sort of liberal education, the kind longed for in the stream of blue ribbon reports on the humanities that now cross my desk. Hmm. So tell me about that. <clears throat> what what is your imagination about the best kind of liberal education that you both mm. received and that you know that you think about and work about work on now right i should say that that college that i that i went to was the only place i could get into um, <laughs> and i got in there because jack mcfarland my high school english teacher had went there had gone there himself uh, seven or eight years before, and he knew some folks there. So he went over and talked to them, and he got me in as a probationary student, right? So um, there I was. <laughs> there I was. And yeah. boy, once more, I found myself at a loss. My, my freshman year didn't go so well. And, and you know, at one point, I... I, I, I was getting close to not fulfilling that pr the terms of the probation. Let me just say, by the way, an aside here. Y you know, we're, we're, we're telling a lot of stories, and I'm telling you a lot of personal stories, but I hope what comes through is that these things that I experience or other folks I talk about are, are commonplace. Yeah. I mean, something that I see happening throughout my career and working in different kinds of preparatory programs is the is the the phenomenon of the young person who um, does well in high school or does well in part of high school anyway uh, is the kind of pride of their neighborhood, and then they come to college, and and run right up against a brick wall because it's a whole other ball game, right? Mm -hmm. And it's larger and it's anonymous, and there may not be a support you know so system of support there. So that same thing happened to me. Well, again, sheer dumb luck. Um, I managed to get some some professors, in, mostly in English, uh, starting in my sophomore year. And this was a small liberal arts college, so these folks were there pretty much to teach. I mean, they weren't. They didn't have a publishing career, and they really devoted themselves to their teaching and their students. And what I meant when I said they gave me the best kind of liberal education was not only that they taught me a lot of things. I mean, that they taught me a lot of things about history or literature, how to write, how to write better. They certainly did that. But they were also people whose office door was open and who would spend a lot of time talking about the material you were learning and would work over a piece of your writing. I can't tell you how many times, Krista, I'd be sitting at the elbow of one of these folks and they were going over a paper yet once again and saying, you know, try saying it this way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> try, try it like this. So all of that kind of personal attention and that, that it gets us back to something we were talking about earlier, the embodiment of knowledge in a relationship and it seems to me that that finally is what good teaching is all about. And, and that's all the way from good teaching in kindergarten through 
graduate school, through medical school, through apprenticeships, through the, the carpenter's workshop, you name it, that somehow or another, skill and knowledge is integrated into some kind of a human connection. And that's what I meant when I said it was the best kind of liberal education, in that it was a humane humanities education. It was hmm. built on relationship and certainly was rich cognitively, but it was that interplay of the cognitive and the social, the personal and the cognitive. And something you you also uh, have concluded with your work with remedial education and that you describe in your own experience at Loyola was how working with your, with, you know, with with that wall you'd come up against, it didn't mean dumb, it, it wasn't, a, what worked wasn't dumbing it down for you and then making it really simple. It was, it was making you, it was, it was also about high expectations, but then supporting that, right? I mean, so expecting you to write papers, but then helping you get it right. But I wonder also if that relationship piece isn't what makes that possible. Absolutely. If you don't know how to do something well, and particularly if you've failed at it before, your impulse is to bolt, right? Mm -hmm. Is to run the other way. Who likes to confront something that reminds you of your failure? <laughs> Nobody. So having some kind of a connection, some kind of a personal linkage can make all the difference in the world because that person reads you, knows you, you know, knows when you're losing spirit, knows when it's time to move in and add a little more support, but also knows when it's time to back off. So that relationship is, is potent on a number of levels, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you bring up another point, and I, I, I really want to touch on it. We've been talking about these assumptions in the culture about intelligence and ability. And one way we've been talking about it is that th there are these unfortunate strands in the culture, very unegalitarian strands, that connect physical work with low intelligence. Mm -hmm. Well, there's another strand that is troubling as well and that has really worked against us, and that is if somebody can't do something, we easily leap to the, the intellect default mode. That is, we think, oh, you know, they don't have it, <laughs> mm -hmm. or they're not that sharp. Um, and th that unfortunate strand has woven its way through remedial or developmental or basic skills education. Um, the assumption is if someone can't do something, then it indicates some, some deficiency, some deficit. And our tendency has been then to take whatever task it is, whether it's mathematics or writing or reading, and break it down into the tiniest little morsels mm -hmm. and then sort of skill and drill folks through them, right? And you, you, I, everybody has seen this a jillion times. You know, the grammar workbook or the, the, the entire remedial course that is just focused on getting the verb tenses right All and right. filling in the blank and that sort of thing. Now, let me say here, that's all important stuff. I want people to be able to get their verb tenses right. But 
it seems to me that this approach we've taken, which is to assume that if somebody doesn't get something, you've got to break it down into the tiniest morsels and just focus on that, has just not been that productive. So what do you do? Well, what you do do is you create conditions where right from the jump, you're giving people intellectually engaging material. And even if it's so, if, if their skills are so poor that they can't read it, you read it for them. Mm-hmm. You get the conversation going around this question in political science or in sociology or in a piece of literature. You generate that you, you, you spark the intellectual activity. So you create you an make, intellectually aspirational environment even if you're still working with little pieces? You, I don't think that you can when the focus is just on the little right, pieces. Right, right, okay. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, but if you, get this, if you get this excitement going, if you get this conversation going, and everybody can contribute because everybody's can, right. everybody can pull things from their own experience. Every, you know, everybody's had some had, – had rich lives of experience. Right. Um, you draw from that. You bring in concepts. Maybe you have to scale things down a bit. Maybe you even take a piece of reading and you edit it down. Maybe you rewrite it even so that it's a bit simpler to use. But the point is, is that you throw people into the activity. And then along the way, you address the bits and pieces. Okay. All right. Right? You, you don't let those go by the wayside, but you integrate them into a meaningful into a meaningful classroom, into a meaningful engagement that makes them feel like, you know what, I'm in the middle of something here that I haven't been in before. You know, something that reading your work, reading your stories about yourself and all the many people you've worked with, um, what it reminded me of, what it kind of immersed me in were mm, my own memories of those moments when my mind came to life, right? Hmm. Um, and as I, you know, as I told you, I also it, it didn't have much kind of what you would call formal education or much, anything very anything rigorous at all until I went to college. And uh, and I also had that situation of feeling like I couldn't do it for a while. But then, but then had this experience that more privileged kids didn't have. You know, kids who had had good educations all along. You know, is that there is this advantage when you haven't had mm-hmm. that, and you have these moments where it's like the whole world opens up and and mm-hmm. something clicks. And uh, and I and I I hear you talk about these moments, and uh, I, you know, it, like just physically, I think you use the word yearning in your writing. It is hmm. a, it's a, it's an ache as much as it's a thrill. Mm-hmm. Um, you you actually I meant to bring this with me and I didn't, but you you have a quote a paragraph from a book. I did write the title, "The Metaphysical Foundations of Modern Science," which was assigned <laughs> to you in those early days, right when you didn't know what you could achieve, and it was this paragraph that you had to go over and over and over again and underline. But it was it was I I it, it did take me back to these moments where where something, where it made your brain hurt and it felt so good, right? Because yeah. it somehow it opened possibility. And I don't know, I, what this also makes me think is how precious these educational experiences are because when we get into, you know, what my father would call real life, capital R, capital L, <laughs> um, you, we, the, you know, those, those are special moments, 
Um, and maybe you can have them when you're 80, not just when you're 18. But, uh, I mean, you get to be present to that a lot. That's, that's a great thing about your work, I think. I think it's really a, those are powerful moments. And, and they can be defining moments, mm-hmm. you know. Um, when you talk to people about their memories of school, memories of teachers, you know, oftentimes you'll get some, some certainly, you, you know, you'll get some bad memories and awful teachers and that sort of thing. That's, that's to be expected. But when people talk about the either falling in love with a discipline, uh, falling in love with a subject matter, or a teacher who made a difference, it's interesting how often they'll remember a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll remember something that they read or something that somebody said or something someone did for them. Th- those moments are powerful. Uh, and I think they live on in memory for a reason because they, sh- they help shape who we are and where we go. There's those moments, as you put it, of, of possibility. Um, and you're right. I mean, I've been really fortunate to be close by as, as those moments erupt. And I guess the point I want to make about those moments and quote-unquote remedial or basic skills education or students who haven't done so well in school is, again, this is another unfortunate binary that we fall into. I, I, I think a lot of folks would just assume automatically that those moments happen all the time with kids who have good educations and you know mm-hmm. go to good schools and have good teachers, they also happen all the time and and are always at the ready with folks who are even coming in with the most basic of skills and the, the longest way to go. It happens if you can create the right kinds of environments for them. You know, it, it, it happened with the, the fellow I was describing who walked out of the library and just was beaming with this sense of possibility right. and, and what, this, um, what this community college experience was going to mean for him. Something else I, w- I wanted to come back to, something you said a minute ago about um, we make an assumption that if someone isn't good at something, um, that there's an intellectual defect. Mm-hmm. You make a very interesting point about um, how our education across recent decades has been so shaped by psychometrics and tests and measurements. And you make a really interesting proposition, and this this applies to very much to the college bound, um, that a high score on a lot of these tests we use, like let's take the SAT, does tell us something we can work with. But a low score tells us less, is less useful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it, you yeah. said it's a measure that only works at the upper end of the scale. That's really interesting. Yeah, I really think that's true. It's like we have a ruler that is, is uh, very precise. Uh, up to about half a point, <laughs> mm-hmm. up, up to about, uh, I, I didn't say that correctly. We have a ruler that's very precise um, for half of its width or length, right? Um, I'm interested, I'm interested in those folks that don't do well on those kinds of tests, that don't do well on the standard IQ test or don't do so well on the the SAT test, let's say. Yeah. Because again, what I want to know, uh, 
is I want to know what they know that's not being reflected in that test. Yeah. Or another, another angle on it is I, I want to find out more about what didn't happen in their educations that made them do poorly on that test. So, or in their life experience. So let's let's take the IQ test, right? That's okay. a, that's a, a, okay. a this kind of standard instrument in our culture for the last century. Um, if someone does well on an IQ test, that certainly tells us something, right? They've got some smarts. Right. There's no doubt about it. But think of the folks who might not do so well on those kinds of tests because they didn't have a lot of formal schooling and everybody admits that there's a direct correlation between amount of formal schooling and how well you do on tests like that. There's an intimate connection between those two things. Uh, so they didn't have a lot of formal schooling. They haven't had a lot of experience taking those kinds of tests. Right. They also don't invest as much in them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the you know, those of us who have been through a ton of schooling, we've been socialized to know that when one of those things appears in front of us, we better try our damnedest right. to do well right, on it. Right. So there's all kinds of reasons by which we can explain, through which we can explain somebody not doing so well on a test like that, reasons other than some, some intellectual deficiency. So then I say, I'm interested in, well, gee, what happens when we go out into the world with this person and we watch them work, let's say, or we watch them raise kids, or we watch them figure out how to make their way through the day or some complicated social relationships? What emerges that bespeaks of intelligence? What goes on right under our noses that bespeaks of some kinds of smarts? So the plumber who uh, reaches up inside of the wall of an old building some, where he cannot see and he can only feel. And through feeling around the structures in there, feeling the rust, feeling, feeling moisture if there's any, feeling the way the thing is structured, he's visualizing what's back there that he can't see. And then bringing a knowledge base to bear on trying to figure out what the problem may be. Right. Um, right. Think of what a complex... Uh, set of mental operations are involved in that. Or the the hairstylist who is presented with someone who comes in and they they, uh, they have a you know a botched dye job, let's say, or uh, and and the stylist and 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 this woman said this to me when I was I was watching her work. She said the first thing I asked myself is what was that previous stylist trying to accomplish? So what an interesting question to ask. <laughs> right. And what an interesting problem-solving road that uh -huh. takes her down. Now, those kinds of things are not going to be picked up on an IQ instrument. They're not mm -hmm. structured to get to that stuff. But those are certainly manifestations of intelligence. So this is so much fun, and I feel like I could talk to you for hours. We, Sorry? Yeah, I know. We have to quit at 2 o'clock. So I think for the last few minutes, <laughs> I should ask some of the questions that people might have expected me to ask all along. <laughs> um, I mean, okay, so so you know so much. You've been doing this. You've been studying it. You've been writing about it. I suspect you're having conversations with other scholars and teachers and systems that I don't know about. We hear a lot about Let's say No Child Left Behind is our latest, you know, the latest flashpoint, obviously and understandably. Um, 
we hear a lot about, and you've written a lot about how we've reduced this reductionist approach that we got. We were just getting out a bit to, you know, testing, standardized testing, and and I think we, I don't know. It seems so obvious to me that standardized testing doesn't uh, capture either intelligence or or education. But I I'd like to ask you, you know, are there are things changing? Um, we're learning a lot about the brain now. Um, you know, we've tried charter schools. Um, what, what do you know about that is happening that may be below the radar? Um, I'm not necessarily asking you to paint a, put a happy picture on this, but, you know, what, would you, what do you see when you look at the big picture of what's happening with education? Well, you know, unfortunately, I see... I, I see that we are locked into a way of thinking about school reform that suffers from so much of what else we've been talking about in this conversation. And that's a kind of a reductive approach to schooling, to learning, to teaching. But doesn't everybody know that it's reductive at this point? I mean, this is what I can't figure out. It's yeah, we're we're it's a runaway train. I think uh, we're we're so locked into a way of solving the educational problem, quote unquote. Um, no child left behind, which everybody wants to to distance themselves from now. But it did it did it did pick up on something in the culture, um, and that is a. belief that there are these kinds of technocratic ways that we can measure with precision mm. what people are learning, how well teachers are teaching, and that we can make consequential judgments based on these measures. And the technocratic ways are, of course, these high-stakes standardized tests. Right. Now, unfortunately, a lot of that same kind of thinking, I mean, the particulars are being tweaked, but that same orientation is carrying over into this new administration. Again, I think they're, they're I'm not saying these are bad people, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying it, it is, it is a way of thinking that makes sense in a technocratic managerial society, which is what we live in. But I think the unfortunate thing is, is that if you really know about schools and you really know about teaching, you get in close to classrooms, you watch this very intimate and difficult and complex thing called teaching and learning, um, you see what a far remove a standardized test score is from the cognitive and emotional and social give and take of the classroom. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm troubled by the over-reliance on this way of thinking about schooling. And you ask, why do we keep making the mistake? Yeah. And I think it's because a significant number of folks who are involved in policy formation are at a far remove from the schools. Okay. Um, most have not taught, uh, or if they've taught, they taught for a year or two, as a, you know, a long time back. And I, I, I contrast that with a journey that I took around the country um, a while back, spending four years 
when I could get the time visiting good public school classrooms, many of them in poor or modest income districts, many of them rural, some urban, spread all across the United States. And the kinds of things that I saw there and the kinds of qualities of good teaching and, and the kind of learning that goes on, I think can in part some little piece of it, some aspect of it will certainly be picked up by the kinds of testing regime that we put in place, but certainly not all and certainly not the kinds of things we've been talking about. My hope would be that we get to the point where we begin to look for much richer ways of thinking about teaching and learning and and richer ways to try and assess what's going on in schools and classrooms. Because here's the good thing about No Child Left Behind and the good thing about the the current impulse is that it is admitting and putting a bright light on the fact that there are a lot of kids who don't do well in our schools. And those kids tend tend to be poor kids, immigrant kids, children of color, and that we absolutely have to do something. This is a moral ethical question of equity. We have to do something to do better with those children. But I don't think that the kind of curriculum and schooling that emerges from the current program of, of accountability, I don't think that's the way to get it to us. I don't think that's the way to get us where we want to be. Do you, you know, you use the term a lot when you talk about breakthroughs in your own life, uh, where you said it was just sheer dumb luck. <laughs> you said that a few <laughs> times. I mean, is there more sheer dumb luck to go around than, than we might imagine? Do, do, you, do you find enough individual programs, schools, teachers that are doing something that corresponds to this very rich imagination you have about intelligence and education that gives you hope? Well, there are, but I think the important thing to say in terms of policy, you know, Mm -hmm. which is what we're talking about Mm -hmm. now, is how can policymakers create the conditions for more of that kind of rich teaching and learning to occur? And I don't think that a model that says something that that goes something like this: we're gonna we're gonna give these assessments; they're going to be of this particular kind, this fairly narrow kind, and this will be the way that we will, and this is a phrase you hear all the time, this is the way we're going we're gonna to hold teachers' feet to the fire and administrators' feet to the fire. Right. The problem with that way of thinking is, it's, 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 first of all, it's a punitive approach to this problem. And the second thing is, it doesn't include anything in it that are going to help teachers really develop if they don't already have these skills. It's not going to help them develop a rich sense of pedagogy, a rich sense of intelligence, a rich sense of student ability. Uh, it's simply going to be a set of measures uh, given to them at a certain point with the admonition that you have to do better. But there's no place in all that where then you're taking teachers together and forming intellectual communities and saying, let's talk about how we create these really rich classrooms and we're going to bring some people in who have done a lot of this and we're going to think really hard about it and we're going to read stuff together and we're going to try it out and then you're going to come back either virtually or in person and we're going to work through this further. Do you see what I mean? There'd be like a whole other way, a kind of a, a human development way that we could think about addressing this problem that we're not educating all our kids as well as we should. Instead, we've drifted to this kind of technocratic 
narrow, standardized, test-based way of approaching the problem rather than a developmental, intellectual uh, approach that really values teaching and learning. You know, you ask a rhetorical question in your writing um, sometimes, you know, when was the last time you heard a really moving speech about education? And I, I think about this in other contexts as well. I mean, the word education itself has become laden with it, it, the word education doesn't inspire. I mean, it should. Mm-hmm. Um, you, but you all, almost interchangeably use phrases like h- human possibility. You know, I mean, reading you made me wonder if we just also need to to think about the language we use. And I mean, let me, let me ask you this positive question. Maybe because we're, we're running out of time, you can respond to that, or also. But did, another question you ask is, what kind of education befits a democracy? So, you know, what, what is the answer you would give at this point? Well, you know, the language we use is hugely important, and it gets to what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. That if the language we use is a strictly instrumental, functionalist language that says, we, we go to school, we send our kids to school because we want to compete in a 21st century economy and therefore we're going to mm-hmm. hit these subjects hard and we're not going to hit these other subjects like music or art or literature or even social studies. Um, if that's the way, if that's the language we're using and that's the way we think about the purpose of schooling, it's going to dramatically narrow what happens in schools. It's going to okay. change the way we think of what it means to be educated. Right. And that has implications for, I think, who we are as a, as a society. Right. So what kind of a language should we use um, in a democratic society? Certainly a language that includes the economic motive. Absolutely, of course. But that braids that motive in with all the other reasons that actually historically in our country we've talked about as well. The civic motive. We send kids to school to become civic beings. We send kids to school to learn how to solve problems with each other. Children go to school because their parents want to help them develop into better people. Mm -hmm. They want them to to find passions. They want them to learn how to learn. These are... And what about in a democracy... Um, learning how to speak up when you think something is not right or learning to take a risk. You know, in this kind of test-based world that students grow up in, you're penalized if you take a risk. But yet, just about any intellectual breakthrough of any kind that that you'll study has seen that it's been a path of breakthrough and failure, of risk, of going beyond what... So where in all of this are, are children encouraged to take intellectual risks? What kinds of classrooms are created that allow that? Do you see what I mean when yeah. I say the language we use yeah, either is essential? It, it either closes down or opens up the richness with which, with which we think about schooling in a democracy. Hmm. I, I think we have one minute. I this is great. Is there anything you want to say in that one minute? Anything I haven't asked you or you want to add? <laughs> oh my gosh! You don't have to. We've had beautiful last words. Um, I just want to, can I talk for a second about this this uh, experience of going around the country? Yeah. So in traveling around the country and looking at all of these fine classrooms, many of them in poor neighborhoods, 
uh, spread throughout rural, urban, northwest, east, south. You know, I, I came away with this. It was a remarkable trip because I not only learned a whole lot about education and a whole lot about what's going on in schools, but I learned a whole lot about the country. I heard, hmm. learned a whole lot about this place called America. It was as though I discovered America through its classrooms. <laughs> and it was such a powerful journey. And after a journey like that, it is so hard then to, to return to a place in, in, our, in our educational history where we talk so narrowly about schooling and the purpose of schooling. Mm. Because in fact, what you see when you travel through all these communities and you talk to parents and you watch these teachers who work so hard and you, you spend time with these kids is you get a sense of this immense rich thing that a classroom can be, a place of both, of both learning subject matter but of learning how to exist in a public space and how to get this, how to have this feeling, this sense that you matter and that your mind matters and that, that this is a place that's safe and respectful and where I can take chances um, and I can learn something and that can have an effect on who I'm going to be. Mm. That was wonderful. Oh, Mike, I've just really enjoyed this so much and I loved getting into your writing and I'm glad you're out there doing what you do. So. Well, Krista, this is, uh, it's been great for me. I, you know, as you know, I listened to your show for a long time, and it's just, um, you're just a terrific interviewer. Well, thank I've you. Done, I've done about 150 of these things <laughs> over the last 20 years. Yeah. And, you know, there's a three or four people who do it like this. And you know, Bill Moyers was one. Studs Terkel was one. Mm. And 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 you are. Oh, thank you. It's uh, a nice uh, list. <laughs> well, uh, it, it just it's just so nice to be able to talk about this stuff without feeling like I'm on a I'm on a, a, a I'm on a clock and I'm right, responding right. to questions that the publicist gave to right. the oh, host. I know it's terrible. You know. Um, so thank you. Well, we will. We may have some questions following up, and we'll let you yeah. know what's going on with this. And I hope maybe we'll meet in person one of these days. I would love that. If you ever, ever, ever get out this way, uh, please let me know. Okay. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.